Whatever's stressing you out today, be it traffic or spilling a cup of coffee, could potentially stress you out tomorrow. But can that stress that you're experiencing today potentially affect your future children? My name is Louis Colorotolo, and I am a highly stressed individual trying to get a PhD in food science at the University of Guelph. And in my free time when I am stressing out and not doing my work, I like to talk with other graduate students about what they're studying and how that stresses them out. So today we are going to have a conversation with Michael Lim, who studies intergenerational stress. He goes down onto the protein level to determine if causing environmental stress in an animal model can be seen passed down through successive generations. How does one measure that? Eh, listen to Michael explain it. Other than kind of like loose interpretations of how stressed an animal is or how, I guess, brave they are, there's not really an easy way to tell how stressed an organism is other than relying on these chemical markers like cortisol. Is the desire to know more stressing you out? Can't blame you. But while you're listening, do us all a favor and remember that we are just graduate students, new in our fields, and we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Michael. How you doing today? Good. How are you? Hi, I'm doing all right over here. Thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> could you do us a favor and walk us through your educational history? Sure. So I started my bachelor's at McMaster University. So I'm trying to cast my mind back now. What year was this? It must have been 20, 2010-ish? Wow, <laughs> 11 years. Anyways, so Yikes. started at McMaster University. So that's Alfin Hamilton. Um, I started in the life sciences program, which is kind of like their big catch-all science program they have over there. And my second year, I specialized in physiology. So that's mostly because one of the three sciences, I'm definitely more interested in biology compared to chemistry or physics. I'm more interested in how animals behave, I guess, is <laughs> what draws me to it. That's why I decided to specialize in physiology, graduated, and then didn't know what to do. But thankfully, someone had reached out to me at McMaster University saying, hey, I saw you're in this program. Do you want to do a master's? I'm like, all right, I got, I got something to do for the next <laughs> two years. And so I did my master's at McMaster University with Joanna Wilson. It was a really fun experience for me because I got to do a lot more research in terms of, you know, you do a little bit in your undergrad if you're lucky in a fourth year program where you can kind of have a small little mini project that a professor has carved out for you. But my master's was really when I got a chance to actually think about experimental designs, picking what I wanted to study, um, how I want to analyze that kind of data. And so from there, I came to University of Guelph where I'm doing my PhD with Nick Bernier in the integrated biology department. And I've been working on it ever since in my fifth year now, and hopefully we'll be done soon. <laughs> you, you're closing out any minute now, aren't you? Yeah, at this point, I'm mostly writing and finishing some last bit of analysis, but that's where it is right now. And you're definitely procrastinating by doing this little conversation, aren't you? <laughs> okay. I'm a stressed out individual, constantly, constantly stressed <laughs> out. Would you say that you're a highly stressed individual? Hmm. So it depends on how you want to characterize stress. So obviously there's people who will be more stressed than me. Like say, for example, you know, you're the president of a country on the brink of nuclear war. Clearly that's much more stressful than, that, than what I'm going through. But I would argue is that I also am <laughs> living a stressful life. It's just a little more of a low key chronic stress where <laughs> you're worried all the time, you're working all the time, but there's never a point where you're like, oh God, I can't take it. But you, it's one of those like slowly building pressures that you always kind of feel. I've never heard the term chronic stress before, but I kind of love it. 
chronic stress is the bread and butter of my lab. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's 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 jump into chronic stress. What what in the world? What what is it? Sure. So when you're thinking of stress, you like you are thinking of things that are an acute stressor. So for example, like if you have a test coming up and you're worried about that, then you know just leading up to that, see in the night before, you might have those crazy stress dreams, or you might be jittery or feeling anxious, depending on the type of person that you are. Whereas the chronic stress is something that is more of a something in the distance or something that you're experiencing all the time. So what I would cast my mind to be something more of like a chronic disease, so say diabetes, where you're chronically worried about maintaining your certain level of blood sugar, you're watching what you eat, you're always going to maintain that. So it's just kind of a low-key amount of stress in the back of your mind you're always kind of worrying about. So stress tends to be considered in a negative light, where if you're stressed out, it's terrible, bad news for you. But if it wasn't important, we would not have maintained the ability to be stressed for millennia up until this point. And so being stressed in the short term is great. It doesn't, it doesn't feel great at the time, but it can be great. Because if you think back to why would you be stressed, is the more often you'd be, say, chased by some giant predator animal. It's like, I don't know, a saber-toothed tiger is trying to eat you. You want to be stressed because what's happening is that you're producing the stress hormone cortisol. And that's helping to, to mobilize your energy stores. So, for example, changing glycogen to, gl to glucose, which your body can actually use for energy. So you can actually feel those activities you need to use to either fight off or escape predators or a dangerous situation. So the problem comes is when you're stressed for a long time. Because cortisol also has these other effects other than just mobilizing energy stores. So what it can do is it can reallocate how your body wants to distribute its energy. So you'd be digesting more inefficiently. You would heal a little bit more slowly you would grow a lot more slowly. You put a lot less energies towards quote-unquote non-essential processes like reproduction. So in the short term, great, you can escape that stress. But in the long term, you could be, well, in a world of hurt. And that's where you see all these detrimental effects related to stress. So, all right, uh, we're thinking stress. You got acute stress, you got uh, uh, long stress, chronic stress. And then uh, I think that a lot of people, we, we hear the word stress and we think something slightly different than what you're thinking. One mm. person explained it uh, something to me this way that I thought was uh, really interesting is they said, you know, there's good anxiety and there's bad anxiety. <laughs> now, that's a word that gets a lot of like, ugh, I don't like anxiety. But uh, anxiety is the reason that we look left, right and left again before we cross the street. You know, if we yep. didn't have that anxiety, we would get plowed over by a car every time <laughs> we, we cross the street. So so this it makes me think of stress. There's good stress out there, you know, stress that makes me not, you know, watch TV all night when I should be studying for an exam. But then at the same time, there's stress of all these other things that are going on in my life that are maybe not affecting my right here, right now, but are having long-term effects, mm -hmm. right? And this is, I guess, the definition of the word chronic, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So the fun thing about stress is that it doesn't actually have to be more of the old school physical stress. So like I mentioned before, like if you're chased by a predator, but stress can actually just come from you thinking that there's a threat to you. So just mental stress. So like, like I mentioned before, like preparing for exam, there's a really <laughs> a famous uh, study where they were measuring the, uh, the cortisol levels in PhD students right before they defended their <laughs> thesis. And you, and leading up to the days before, you see just massively spike, and then right after they defend, the day after it plummets dramatically because they're just way, way, way less stressed. So obviously, their life is not at stake if they don't pass their thesis. They'll have more opportunities, or you know, people aren't going to be harping on them super, super hard, so they won't be able to pass at that point. It really, it's more that a thought process of like, oh, this is like life and death. I 
have to get this done. So like even like like you mentioned before, like a schoolwork or like relationships and stuff, there is that always low level of stress where you're thinking like, oh, I guess if you if you go back down to the fundamentals in terms of why are you stressed about non physical things like relationships? Oh, if I don't hang out with these people, they might not be my friends. Which in the long term could be bad for you because you know you want to have relationships as a human being because you need that <laughs> to survive in, in everyday life. Or say example, you oh I need to do this work. That's because you have deadlines piling up and to be finishing at this time, or maybe to get paid, or and so on and so forth. You need to be at, build complete these tasks. So it's there's a lot of this mental element of stress. I think that should not be ignored. Uh, completely. And you know, whenever you're on social media, you're always seeing these like awful, awful, I don't even want to call them memes. They don't even deserve that, right? But it's also like, just stop stressing about the small things. <laughs> like, okay, sure. Oh, oh, I'm cured. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I've stopped stressing and now I'm, I'm better. Obviously there's no magic switch where you can just like, oh yes, I'll let me just turn off that, that stress switch and I'll just lay here like a potato and forget everything. <laughs> and there's, there's no like easy way to, to address that either. I mean, I guess depending on the level of stress you have, because having anxiety and all that is not obviously great for your health. And I'm sure that there are certain drugs or medications you could take to suppress the amount of, say, cortisol you're producing in your system. But that's not something that everyone should be doing. Because like I mentioned before, having an, even just like a baseline level of cortisol or stress in general is really good for you. It's It helps to shape how your body reacts and responds to stresses. So like you were mentioning before, if you never perceive something as stressful or as high stakes, like even say giving a presentation to i don't know your family or for some reason i don't know i'm trying to think of a good example here you do give do you give a lot of presentations to your family do they just love when you come home so get another presentation <laughs> well it's more like just like having a, a certain amount of risk or a certain amount of i would say tension when you when you're preparing for something really helps to sharpen your ability to focus and and do it so I would say like something that like an old prof told me a long time ago is like, I, I always feel nervous doing presentations. Um, I'm not sure if it's always obviously clear at the time, but like leading up to it, super anxious. You can feel that like the butterflies in your stomach, you like get a little twitchy, your knees feel weak, that kind of dealio, all the stereotypical presentation things. I, I always feel that, but what that prof told me was that it's good that you feel anxious and a little bit nervous because it means that you care. <laughs> if oh, you did okay. not care, if you did not care, you would not feel anxious, but then you probably would not give as an emotional or impactful speech or message or whatever you're trying to do, because, you know, there's no stakes to it. You just, there's no relevance to you. You're like, well, it doesn't matter. This bombs. It's not going to affect me. I don't care. It's not the best way to look at life. On the flip side, of course, it's not good to <laughs> be paralyzed by choice and like every single decision. Oh, it's so critical. If I drink coffee or tea this morning, it's going to change my life. So, you know, obviously there's a fine balance between being stressed or not, but I do think having a little bit of stress and most things you're trying to do is good for you. All right. So up until this point, we have talked a lot about the acute stress. Hmm. You are kind of more on the chronic stress side when it comes to what you work with. Mm -hmm. And it, how do you see any of this? Like, all right, I can tell you right now as we're having this conversation, uh, yeah, I don't make a lot of money and that's stressful. But I wouldn't say like, oh my God, today I'm so stressed because my paycheck is the same as it was last week, but today I'm stressed about it. So how does one measure chronic stress? So this is where it's a little bit tricky in terms of how people want to approach what stress is. So cortisol is one of those common things people turn to when they talk about stress studies, because you can measure it pretty easily. It's a hormone that's produced 
kind of like three quarters of the way down the signaling cascade of when you first sense a stressor and then try to respond to being stressed. So people will go, oh, so is this stressor actually stressful? Depends if they hit like a cortisol induction is what people typically categorize it as. So for long-term studies, what people usually look at are those cortisol levels where they're elevated for long periods of time. But the thing is that obviously the body does not want to be stressed all the time. So there are negative feedback loops to suppress the production of cortisol um, down the line, and usually done by sensing cortisol and responding to you appropriately. That's where you see the really interesting effects, is where you have these altered states in the body to respond to stress. So for example, having more or less stress receptors, essentially, which sense cortisol, and then trigger its effects downstream. So if you have really high amounts of cortisol, but you don't want to be stressed all the time, what you could possibly end up having is reduced receptors. So if there's less receptors to pick up cortisol, there's less of a response, and therefore there's a different baseline. So that's where you see some really interesting studies, and in, um, especially in, in mammals, where you have a really, really stressed or chronically stressed mother, and then they have children who have high levels of cortisol because they have high levels of cortisol and low levels of receptors. And what happens is that they end up being more, well, anxious. Because cortisol is triggering these quote unquote like anxious behaviors. So they, you know, you know, being scared or being shy or like staying out of the light kind of thing. And then with less receptors to respond to cortisol, you know, just being nervous all the time. And so there's this link between chronic stressors between one generation and how it can affect the next generation, which is the big thing and a big key focus of my research. So we're talking intergenerational stress. Yes. But, you know, it, it's it's interesting because this is a topic that comes up a lot in social sciences. Mm. And I would say if, if anyone who is listening right now was to hear the term intergenerational stress before, they're most likely thinking from like a social science perspective. At least that, that's what I would assume. But you are really looking at the the scientific the the chemistry well more biology that's your thing uh <laughs> the more biology slash chemistry side of how stress happens and specifically in mothers yeah so i think that a lot of them like you mentioned before in such of those social studies and psychology work that you often see people looking at things like say if you're anxiety or depression or whatnot within your parents there's a good chance that those behaviors and how they react with you as you're growing up could infect your, you know, disp disposition growing up and change you and be passed on that way. Um, I'm looking more in terms of what can we actually measure as transfer between uh, one parent to the next. And so by working with animals, obviously, you know, you can't do a whole psychology study and then like, how do you feel today, zebrafish? <laughs> Feel stressed. Yeah, it's, you don't. You don't. You set them up on like one of those little lounge chairs and like, <laughs> talk to your zebrafish. These how many centimeters long is a zebrafish? They're not even. Oh god! So zebrafish is like maybe like an inch and a half, two. If you were like a, a massive zebrafish, I don't think I've ever seen one that's a whole, bigger than two, or if it's even possible for a zebrafish. But no, and there's not. It's not. It's just like you can't ask them a detailed question like that or have something like, I don't know, put them in a tank and you have a bunch of little spaces numbered one to ten. Like, how stressed are you? <laughs> Swim to ten if you're very stressed and zero if you're not. You know, you can't do that. <laughs> so at best, you can do some behavioral measures. So things like stigmataxis. So that's a just a fancy way of saying how much does an organism want to stay on the edges of a field or in the middle of the field where they can be easily seen. So generally, if they're more stressed, they'll say towards the edges, so you can hide from predators more easily, versus if you're in the middle, you're exposed. Other than kind of like loose interpretations of how stressed an animal is or how, I guess, brave they are, there's not really an easy way to tell how stressed an organism is, other than relying on these chemical markers like cortisol 
or relying on other chemical markers that respond to stress in general, like heat shot proteins, which I'm not sure if we want to dive into that. <laughs> that is kind of the meat of your study. Could we could we touch the surface of heat shock proteins? All right. So heat shock proteins, like the name implies, these were found decades and decades ago, where if you expose an animal to, well, heat, they produce a lot more of these proteins called heat shock proteins. That's where they get their name from. So what happens is when the animal is exposed to high-level heat, you have the potential to have breakdown of proteins and DNA in your body, in your cells. Obviously, not great, because if you don't have functioning proteins, you're essentially dead. So heat shock proteins act as chaperones, and so they help protect these proteins from damage. Or if they are damaged, they can help either refold them back to normal or shuttle them off to be disposed of. So heat shock proteins are actually produced to, in response to a wide variety of stressors. So like um, for fish was like hypoxia or plants like to drought or like animals exposed to like radiation. They will all increase heat shock proteins, which help protect your proteins in your cells from damage. Otherwise, well, you would die. So a big component of my studies are looking at not just cortisol, but also looking at the more innate cellular stress responses in terms of producing heat shock proteins. We don't rely on the whole, you know, the organism has to sense something is stressful, then produce that signaling cascade to produce cortisol. It ended up being kind of more <laughs> interesting aspect of my research in terms of what's passed on between mother and child, at least in fish. <laughs> Zebrafish. Yes. You know, I'm thinking about these heat shock proteins. If you are a zebrafish, now imagine you're a zebrafish. Have you, have you imagined that you were a zebrafish ever before? <laughs> I can't say I have, no. I have not imagined this being a This is a good opportunity. This is, a, <laughs> all right, so pay attention. You're a, you are a zebrafish. Mm. Uh, swimming in your zebrafish home. I don't know these things. All <laughs> okay, right, so, yeah. <laughs> so if, if you, you're, you're swimming in water and you're mm. having a good time and then the water gets real hot and then gets real cold and then real hot and then real cold, mm. you're experiencing heat shock. You know, a large mm -hmm. change in temperatures and your zebrafish body is like, all right, I need to do something about this. This is not good. I'm going to create some heat shock proteins in order to protect me from this kind of crazy temperature change that's happening around me. Is this what's going on? So it's not so much a conscious process you can't think like oh i need to produce heat shock proteins just like when you're stressed you're not thinking oh i gotta produce cortisol it's a more of like an automatic sensing response where your body will sense a stressor and then respond automatically whether you want to or not and that's the same thing with heat shock the fun thing about heat shock proteins is that they're found in almost all organisms and they're conserved so that means they're relatively unchanged between different species so like what you might find in you could be the same thing found in zebrafish could be the same thing found in Mice, birds, even some plants can produce heat shock proteins, for example. This is, good. This is a, a key thing to help protect you from damage and doesn't require, quote unquote, conscious thought to produce it. And so when I'm exposing my zebrafish to a cycling temperature or cycling dissolved oxygen exposure, they're experiencing these rises in temperature for brief moments of time and gradually being decreased. Instead of being a heat shock, it's more of a gradual warming process. Because this, this warming takes actually nine hours to reach its peak temperature. Mm. So it's imagine to be like, Essentially, you're in a pot that very, 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 very slowly goes up and then go very, very slowly back down. There's no two point where they would actually kill the zebrafish. They have a higher heat tolerance than whatever I expose them to. But the goal is for that automatic 
stress sensing response to be triggered within the zebrafish. All right, so we, we got this automatic response. They're not thinking to themselves like, ah, T-Chuck protein making time. <laughs> like, it, I mean, if we could do that, I'd be like, it's bicep making muscle time. And, <laughs> and I would be jacked. Uh, so we, we, we can't do that. I understand that those two are not really equal. Um, <laughs> the same metaphor is there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so, so they can't control it. They're, they're not like, okay, it's time to do this. Uh, but they, they make these proteins. Mm. And if they are making these proteins... At some point, they're probably going to reproduce. And their body has more of these proteins. Their body is going to dictate how I I don't... You walk me through it. (laughs) (laughs) So, when I was speaking before in terms of producing heat shock proteins, is that often they're produced just in response to a stressor. So, if you're, say, exposed to high heat, oh, I got the body itself is like, I got to produce more heat shock proteins produces them and eventually it's it's costly to maintain heat check proteins because it takes energy to produce them takes energy to maintain them for whenever you need them so unless you're being exposed to a stressor repeatedly it doesn't make sense to maintain them because you're just burning through energy so the thing with my regime is that um they're cycling up and down in terms of high temperature and low temperature but this is what's seen in their natural habitat and because we've seen other more extreme habitats like say tidal pools where the wire goes up and down, and because of that, they're exposed to more sunlight, essentially directly in a smaller pool of body of water, so they get heated to a high temperature. Anyways, so the thing is that to maintain their ability to respond to the stressors across time, because I suppose in, for several weeks to these cycling regimes, they maintain relatively high levels of heat check proteins. And so during this whole process, they're also still maintaining the production of other aspects of their body. So in this case, they're still investing some energy towards reproduction. So in this case, for females, this involves the production of oocytes, or essentially what's going to become the new zebrafish embryo once it's fertilized. So when they're producing these oocytes, they can also deposit these high amounts of heat shock proteins they have in their bodies so that the early embryo, which obviously, you know, when you're just a couple cells, you can't produce your own heat shock protein response. So theoretically, having these heat shock proteins around, especially in that early window of time, can really help you survive if you're exposed to a similar high temperature stress like your parents were exposed to. All right, so, so ultimately, the mother is sort of passing on these learned experiences uh, and in the form of heat shock proteins to their baby. Yeah, and that's, well, that's what I'm trying, I'm trying to find out. <laughs> if they're passing on the heat shock proteins or cortisol or what is being shared between the stressed mother and their offspring. Now, I know that there's there may be, it's funny how many people are going to listen to this, this specific episode, there may be some sticklers who are outraged that I would say that this is a transgenerational response. Because technically, yes, the the cells in the mother and the fathers in these experiments, they're also being exposed. So like the like the sperm and the oocytes are both being exposed to these temperatures in cycling hypoxia. The goal is to see what they're transferred to their offspring, though, because in real life, it's not like you would have a stressed parent, and then all of a sudden they would no longer be stressed at all, and then and then spawn, and that'd be it. It's very unlikely to happen in real life, and it wouldn't be relevant in terms of preparing their offspring for stressors. If they're experiencing no stress, what's the point? In transferring like heat check proteins and whatnot. So it's more about trying to be environmentally relevant while acknowledging that for it to be truly a transgenerational response, it would have to be at least three generations of leave. Because it's this generation, the next generation is technically the oocytes in that generation, and then that generation is technically directly exposed, so it has to be the following generation. And that's when you can see that there's this <laughs> multi-level transfer, essentially, from like your grandparents down to you, assuming nothing has happened. Then you can say it's transgenerational. (laughs) 
All right, all right. So they, I, I feel it. I feel the things that you're saying right now is uh, you're you're battling that scientific community. <laughs> like someone listens to this and they're like, I am gonna, I am gonna. If I see Michael on the street, I'm gonna literally punch him. I hate that he said that. Because all right, so so if we are getting specific. This transgenerational. It needs to be a lot of generations before we can actually say it's a thing. Um, yeah. And that that takes a lot of work, which actually beautifully ties into my next point is that uh, why should I care about if you heat up a zebrafish bath or not? Like, what? <laughs> why? Like, Mike, what, what, are we, what, what, what are we doing here? We're just making a bath for zebrafish? Like, <laughs> this is what we're paying you to do? All right, so, so the, the selfless response to this is that as humans... We should be trying to care about the animals around the planet that we're completely messing up with climate change. And so the Love goal it. here is to look at if we're exposing animals to higher temperatures, which are going to be experienced with, you know, the vast majority of animals on this planet, can they prepare their offspring for that stress? So even though we're ruining the planet, is there still hope for animals to cope with this messed up planet that we're making? Which realistic is. So we're doing this research to better understand how stressed parents are communicating information to their offspring, and that actually is beneficial for their tolerance to those stressors later on in life. The more selfish reason is that zebrafish actually share a lot of similar genes and pathways that humans use. So I'm not sure if you may remember from like integrated biology class about uh, Lamarck, I believe was his name. He was a semi-famous uh, biology evolutionary guy where essentially he was saying that traits that parents have could be passed into their offspring. So the famous example is like a giraffe with a really, really long neck would have children with also really, really long necks. So they would be better adapted to eating those leaves. And everyone laughed at him because like, that's impossible. Genes can't code for that. They can't code for length. Length is like, that's more of like a plasticity within the individual, not cross generations. But as we've unlocked more and more about um, the genome and epigenetic modifications, which are essentially these changes to gene sequences that aren't directly coded for genes, but whether they can change the expression of genes that do something. We're seeing that actually might not be too far from the truth, where you can have these adaptations in parents and those can be passed on. So, for example, if you're stressed out, I don't know, I don't think this has ever been measured in humans, but say, I don't know, maybe you had like parents and their generations all grown up like in the desert, for example. So they're used to high heat stress low amounts of water, so their body has adaptations, theoretically, at a cellular level, it could be passed on. Maybe if that person was also, like, they had, you know, children or grandchildren, so on and so forth, might be better to have to deal with heat than, say, people who live for hundreds of years in Antarctica. I don't know that. Might be possible. Might be, like I mentioned before, probably be very hard to tell. Okay, so eventually... Some of this trickles down in something we might see every day, but but that, you know you don't have to go into this research in order to you know benefit that one specific thing because ultimately what you're doing is serving a lot of different processes all over. Mm. It's not really going to be like ah yes the Nobel Prize awarded <laughs> in heat shock protein discoveries goes to Michael Lim. That's not <laughs> it's not really the situation that we're we're up against. But what you do has a large effect in how a number of things go uh, between the environment and ecology and potentially even humans. And that, if I understand correctly, mm. is the true benefit of what you're doing. Yes. So I think a proper saying is that, you know, the results of science aren't by one individual, but stand on the shoulders of giants. In reality, all this work that I'm, I'm doing on is heavily reliant on a lot of the work that's come before, 
like identifying heat check proteins, identifying cortisol, identifying that they're maintained within fish and are maintained across other species. And it, this is just another, I guess, like rung on the ladder going forward in terms of how can we better understand stress in animals and what does that mean for our future world in climate change? Yeah, and that that sums it up beautifully. I was going to ask you to sum it up, and you already did that. I don't need to even ask you to do it. <laughs> I'm psychic, you say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we're we're set. All right, so I uh, I have a lot of work to do, and honestly, I'm stressing out right now. So I'm going to go back and do it, but that stress is good because it's going to make me do it instead of watching television. Because I'm <laughs> kind of also debating if I want to just do that instead. Stress in moderation. If you find yourself getting too stressed, it's okay to take a break. It's important to do that as well <laughs> stress in moderation all right that's the tagline everyone <laughs> okay well thanks so much for talking with us today it was a true stress-free prelude <laughs> thank you for having me Ooh, didn't listening to that episode relieve a little bit of stress i'd be willing to say it relieves just as much stress as one of those squishy office toys that's in the shape of a duck or something Michael talked a whole lot about stress and how that is potentially passed down from generation to generation. But before moving on to the next generation, we need to do a quick fact check. At the end of every episode, we'd like to go back, listen to what we said, and make sure that nothing was necessarily inaccurate. So Michael and I did this, and we found no facts that needed to be corrected in our recordings, and we're happy with it. But if things do come out in the future that we find are not true, we will be sure to write about it. And lastly, I cannot stress enough how thankful I am that you listen to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.